from Look Up Here Productions. This is Open Your Hymnal, the show that explores the most beloved, enduring, and consequential songs we sing at Mass. Matt Reichert and Zach Stahowski. Hello and welcome back, Open Your Hymnal listeners. My name is Zach Stahowski. And I am Matt Reichert. And we're so thrilled to have you back here with us. As we record this episode, we are still steeped in the complications of the pandemic. And I don't know about you, Matt, but one of the things that I notice is that my perception of time has been really different. Like, I forget what day it is often. So much has been thrown off in that way for me. Yeah, it's, um, it, I remember when I was teaching middle school and high school, like, you knew summer vacation arrived when you first had that moment when you couldn't tell if it was Friday or Tuesday. Like, that's how you knew summer mm-hmm, vacation mm-hmm. was really there. And I feel like, n- not that I would compare quarantine or anything at all to a vacation, but like our normal flow and rhythm has been so disrupted. I, I don't get up in the morning to get in my car to commute. I just, you know, put on my slippers and go downstairs. Like the, the typical things that mark time for me aren't there. And yeah, it's, it's hard to keep track. And I have to remind myself we're in August you know, yeah. not not still in April, and everything is uh, topsy turvy. Yeah, and and spiritually, it has gotten me thinking a lot just about the timelessness of God, the timelessness of our faith, and uh, all the ways that that uh, presents itself. And I think that that is a main theme of this song that we're talking about today. Yeah, that that's exactly right. This this piece. Um... You know, as I think about In Every Age from Jeanette Sullivan Whitaker, not only do I think about a song of comfort and a song of trust and hope, but also a song that really does help explore who we know God to be. And at this time that we're experiencing something we've never experienced before, um, I think you're right. This does fit and, and meet us, a lot of us, where we are right now asking those same questions. And what I found was particularly interesting is not only does she reveal those things with the text, but she also tries to paint that imagery with the way that she writes the music. Yeah, so obviously, like all of our conversations, there's an awful lot to talk about in this episode. So let's dig right in. So please open your hymnal to In Every Age. My name is Jeanette Sullivan Whitaker. I am a a composer uh, published by OCP and World Library Publications. Um, I am a 40-year veteran of active parish music ministry, and I live in Hayward, California, with my husband of 36 years. Way back in the 90s, early 90s, I think it was, um, I was uh, 
I, I was invited by um, the family of one of my husband's childhood friends. His name was John Woodcock, and he was actually a professional um, defensive lineman for the Detroit Lions, I think. A famous guy. But he was part of the Episcopal Church where, yeah, where my um, husband was born and raised and where we were married. And John passed away. He retired from football, and he passed away not long after. He just went to sleep one night and never woke up. Uh, he was a big, healthy guy, big teddy bear. Loved me, loved loved everyone. He was a faith-filled man. He was um, anyway, my husband's buddy. Actually, my, my brother was seriously injured by him in a football game <laughs> in high school, but um, that's another story. Anyway, John passed away, and his mother uh, reached out to me and said, we'd like you to come and sing for Johnny's, um, Johnny's Mass, Johnny's service. It's going to be in four days. And I said, well, I'd love to. And what would you like me to sing? And she said, anything you want. And um, at the time, I was studying uh, counterpoint studies as part of my music degree. So I was thinking, everything that I was thinking in music was sort of a counterpoint exercise. And, um, but I was sort of putting that together and putting together, what would I like to say? The psalm that came to me was Psalm 90, uh, teach us to make use of the time we have. We don't know. We just don't know, and then it's gone forever. So I was sleeping one night, and I had this memory of, uh, or this memory, this tune in my head, and it was the melody that serves as the introduction for that song. And a lot of times it's not, it's not in the hymnals or anything, but that's an important part of the song because that's the part that hatched first. I dreamed of that melody I woke up and I wrote it down and this was probably two or three in the morning and I ended up turning it into a song and I thought, you know, this is, this could be the song that I write for John's funeral. And by, by morning I was still writing and the song was complete. And, um, I went and I sang it. The first time I sang it was at John's funeral and it was literally on the, the handwritten pencil manuscript that I wrote it on saying the song. And um, the priest, who's a dear friend of ours, Father Richard Leslie, he came to me afterwards. He said, what are you doing with that song? I said, well, I'm probably going to put it in my purse and take it home. I don't know. And he said, uh, well, why don't you record it? Why don't you try to get it published? I said, I don't have money for that. And he says, well, what do you need? And apparently, you know, being an Episcopal priest, he... Um, he had just come into a big inheritance and he said, I've got some money I'd like to invest in it. So he pulled out his checkbook and he wrote me a check for the, 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 for the cost of re recording a CD, you know, an, an, al an album with that song on it. So I have, a, I have a, 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 a first independent CD that's called In Every Age that that song is on. And I had the, the choir come in and sing, my church choir, my friends, we came in and sang the Gustav Holstein choir part in the background. It was really cool. And then um, from there, I floated it to uh, a couple of other, you know, floated it to OCP um, because they had called me and said, you know, people are asking us about this, con this song you're singing in concerts and they think that you're um, published by us because they had already published uh, here at this table. And I said, well, open your mail. 
No, that's not true. Um, anyway, they, they ended up publishing it. And uh, I went to Richard and I said, well, I got to pay you back. And he said, all I ask is that when, when the song gets published, that the, underneath the title, it says, in memory of John Woodcock. So if you look at the octavo, that's what it says there. So that was John's, um, you know, sweet man, dear, dear, dear man. Uh, and his funeral, his passing was the birth of that song. Zach, when you um, are reviewing a piece or you order a new piece or, you know, get an octavo to showcase or something, uh, do you read the dedication lines? I always do. And sometimes I am surprised to see that I know that person. I think this one was especially interesting. Uh, Being a lifelong Detroit Lions fan myself, of course, uh, John Woodcock, may he rest in peace. But as a Detroit Lions fan, especially of the early 90s, um, it was encouraging to know that the Detroit Lions did have a hand in something as successful as this song. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the reason the reason I ask is like I I find I, I too always read the dedication line. And, and I find it interesting, and, and maybe sometime in another episode we can talk about, you know, how those are crafted. You know, sometimes they're written, of course, because they're commissioned, sometimes because, you know, the composer has a connection, whatever the case might be. But it, it always reminds me, I think, of the, the way that, especially in pastoral music and liturgical music, these actual ministerial applications are why these pieces are written. I mean, this wasn't a, a piece that Jeanette just thought would be nice someday as a song of comfort or a funeral. It was written for an actual liturgy. It was written for an actual, you know, use in community for a very important milestone. And, uh, you know, again, the, the, the lines themselves, the dedication lines are interesting and important, but I, I always appreciate that reminder that these are pieces written in communities for communities for this purpose. Well, it reminds us that composers and compositions are not products of a vacuum, right? They're products of all the circumstances and experiences that have formed that person to that point. And so Music can be such an interesting window into the soul of of that person of that time. Yeah, it, it it humanizes in a different way, and I and I I know that you know many of the pieces in our classical repertoire, for example, um, you know were written either commissioned or had certain dedications that are long lost. And anytime, you know, I look at a score, I, I don't know, it just it humanizes um, that requiem when you see the name of a person you don't know and know that they were a flesh and blood person who was connected to the composer, or it humanizes that piece written for the RCIA when you see the child's name whose baptism that composer wrote it for. I don't know. There's, there's something about it that just, it adds a different depth, even though 99% of the time I don't know the person in the dedication line. Right. And when we learn the circumstances of the dedication, we can also, we can often find ways of connecting to a similar experience in our own lives, which helps us to internalize uh, what's going on in the text, what's going on in the music. I, I, I wonder, too, again, I'm just thinking out loud here, but um, n- knowing how multifaceted the human relationship is with psalms, uh, 
just because of you know the the depth and the breadth of emotion that the psalms contain in and of themselves, but also the way that we as a church pray the psalms, not only in our Eucharistic liturgy, but also in Liturgy of the Hours or in personal prayer, devotional prayer. Um, I, I think you know a piece like this that is based on a psalm text, in this case Psalm ninety, um, seeing that connection, knowing looking at the text of Psalm 90, and then here knowing the way that, you know, a text inspired by that psalm was prayed for a particular individual at his funeral liturgy, again, just adds that different human element. I don't know, there's a there's a um, a perfect marriage here of very human things for me that, uh, again, just provides a, a certain depth of experience when, when I look at this piece. Yeah, because I think the universality of the psalms is something that we should be constantly mindful of, right? Because often when we have really intense emotional reactions to something, I think that there's a temptation to feel like we're the only people who've ever felt something like this or to think very insular about it. Uh, The Psalms remind us that all of these experiences are part of the universal human experience and connect us to each other in that way. is a, a special um, a special way that mountains represent themselves in my spirituality I, I feel and um, in my 20s you wouldn't know it but in my 20s I was a backpacker and here in California we have the high Sierras and those things don't go anywhere they are big and they're eternal and I remember specifically sitting in a meadow looking up at these mountains and thinking those mountains are forever they're they're And God is more forever than that. And that was mind-blowing for me to just contemplate that. And that actually comes from the psalm itself. Before the mountains, you are God. And it doesn't say that before the mountains, you were God. You are God. You are throughout, way, way back as far as we can think. So I just wanted something to go, like, over the top. I wasn't thinking about whether it would uh, have that effect on someone like you, Zach, because you probably weren't even born yet. (laughs) um just kidding and i think that the 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 grass the grass that fades um it's like you know we're grains of sand on the shore we are we're a blade of grass and it just it withers and dies and blows away and yet god is forever god is above all of this uh loving us through it all obviously part of it had to had to speak to um encouraging encouragement be encouraging those who are praying and listening to um to embrace embrace everything that comes our way because in spite of all of that god is our refuge our every joy and pain there was pain in that room when we were celebrating that man's life there was pain and there was shock there was um to uh, make use of the time we have because we don't know. Uh, We don't know when it's over. So there was a few things that were at work in my paraphrasing of it, which directly spoke to the 
the uh, funeral moment. So, you know, as as is our custom, you know, we, we heard Jeanette talk about her approach to setting text, writing paraphrases, etc. And, and now we're going to hear her in a minute um, talk a little bit more about her approach to the compositional craft. And this is the first time that we've had Jeanette on the show as an interview guest. We hope certainly not the last. Um, but it's not the first time that we've heard her music. We've, we've highlighted compositions from Jeanette um, in many of our episodes in the playlist feature. So we're, we're going to hear Jeanette talk about her approach to composition. But Zach, as a, as a composer, as our um, resident music theory guy, um, when, when you look at a piece like in every age, like set a, set a base for us, what musically is going on in this piece that you, you want to make sure you know, to point out or that you find noteworthy? One of the most formative experiences that I had in undergrad uh, with a professor was when he said, it was a conducting class, and he said, anytime you perform a piece of music, you need to do everything you can to know everything about the piece that the composer did. And when you think about what a challenge that is, uh, is, it's pretty daunting. But when I look at a piece like in every age, like I want to know where those intervals come from, where the chord progressions come from, especially be- when they're as interesting as what goes on in every age. What I've always found compelling about this song is that she really plays with our expectations of where the tonal center is. Does it rest in minor? Does it rest in major? Uh, There are a lot of interesting non-chord tones that create a sense of ambiguity, and I think that that paints a lot of the text that she is setting here. So there's, there's a lot going on here, and I think it's really fun to listen to and try to try to find. I think uh, mystery is really important to me. And um, I also think that, uh, first of all, I wasn't, I was, I was thinking of it as a minor key piece, obviously the, uh, but I also think that it's really powerful to bloom, to bloom out of minor, out of the minor key and into something that is bigger than what we what we just said before. Um, and I actually have done that in a lot of, a lot of pieces, um, move back and forth between the relative minor and the, and the major one into the other or vice versa. I think it's important. It's important to, uh, to do that for, um, for the sake of mystery, um, for the sake of the, the ambiguity of faith itself. I think it, it just, it helps. Um, there was a, a piece, this is a totally different piece, but it's a, a setting of um, be merciful. Oh God, for we have sinned that I wrote. I don't know if you've heard that one, but that one, the sinned comes on the major key. It's an F minor and sinned comes in the major key. And there was a geek kid in my choir that said, this is kind of funny that on the word sin, you went to a major key. And I said, look at the, look at the uh, exalted. Oh, happy fault. Oh, necessary sin of Adam. So I think that the, that the teachings of the church, uh, yes, we were, we were called to believe, to follow Jesus without questioning. But I think that real faith has an ambiguity to it that if you're not always asking questions, if you're not always worried and, and a little bit scared and a little bit uh, 
mystified by it, then it's it's not um, it's it couldn't really be called faith. It's just it's certainty, and we don't have certainty. And maybe that's lack of certainty is one of the is one of the reasons why that piece goes back and forth, um, and then it blooms into major, then ends again in minor. I think that the um, the refrain probably was the most important part to me, and and the oh god that that oh god part that had to be um, the the top of the arc that had to be that that oh god that that was really important to me too um, because of the grief that was that was you know the 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 thing that it came out of was that grief. And, and I always feel like, um, songs where we plead, we plead to God should have the, the O and the God very, you know, very in a soaring way. Um, so that was really important to me. And I think that that is probably one of the most important parts of the song. Um, when you read the Psalm itself, it's flat in every age, oh God, you have been our refuge or whatever. It's just, it's one of the reasons why music is homiletic. Music, music sets the, sets the text uh, to flight, to be what it is supposed to be. If we have a gifted um, Shakespearean, Patrick Stewart-esque, you know, lecture reading it, then yeah, but it isn't always the case. So we want to sing it and plus, it's a psalm. It should be. A, it should be a hymn. So that was real important to me. The verses had to had to lay low and be almost um, not really recitative, but in that small, in that that narrow speech, like long before the mountains came to be, in the and the land and sea and stars of the sky. Those were those are in a fairly small tessitura, and I think that's one of the reasons why I try to do that anyway. Um, so that your average Joe or Jeanette average person can sing that and it's not taxing. It's not jumping all over the place. It also has a humbleness to it. There's a humility, um, a, a sense of humbleness before God, before the greatness of God that I was going for during the verses. Um, it was also in the 90s when we took much greater liberties with paraphrasing, I think, I think we did, we took a lot more liberties of paraphrasing a text. Um, and I did a lot of paraphrases of the Psalms that are pretty much, they're only good as songs now. And to be, to be specific, that my and every age, I always tell people it's not a responsorial song. It's not meant as one, it's meant as a song and uh, based on one of the Psalms, but no one ever listens to me with that. So. The part at the end where we repeat, you have been our refuge, you have been our hope, you have been our refuge. Um, I just wanted that to be, I didn't want it to just end. I wanted it to sort of trail off because that's the way eternity works. You know, eternity winds off and walks off into the distance and we don't know where the horizon is. So in a way, that's why the extended uh, coda does what it does.
and I, I, I remember actually thinking if it's, if we're asking, if we're, if we're singing about something that goes on into eternity, then it needs to sort of trail off and not end abruptly. One of the themes that's come back, especially with uh, songs like this that have achieved a certain level of ubiquity in the repertoire, is the idea of having to let that song go and take a life on of its own. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really interesting point, especially for a song of comfort like this one is. I mean, when we've said this multiple times in in conversations in other places that you know, it it's no surprise maybe that the episodes of this podcast that get the most listens are those that are songs of comfort because they mean a lot to people and people hear them and apply them to their own lives and pray with them in particular ways with, you know, particular people in mind or certain situations. So that element of being a song of comfort is really interesting to me. But also, as someone who's not a composer, (laughs) who has sometimes been known to have control issues, <laughs> especially about the things that I create or the things I do. It is always interesting to me when a composer talks about releasing a song into the wild, if you will. And sometimes the the ways that people receive that composition, receive that creation. And I, I don't know about you, Zach, but this is one of my favorite stories we've heard from a composer about what happens when you let that piece go and put it in the hands of other musicians. Once um, I wanted to tell this story about a funny thing that happened with that song. And uh, I was the music director at Corpus Christi Church in Piedmont. And uh, I was, you know, as music director, it was my job to accompany all the visiting singers. And there's a guy that came and I think he was probably from the city from San Francisco, but he came in with his $5,000 suit and his briefcase. And he says, yes, I'll be singing today. I'll be singing Paris Angelicus by Cesar Franck. And, <laughs> cause I'm stupid, you know? And, uh, and I'll be singing on Eagle's wings and he rolled his eyes again. And, and then this song and this song, and then this one, which you've probably never heard of. And it was in every age. And he had a photocopy of it, first of all. I didn't see anything. He said, oh, I know. I said, I, I know that one. And he said, oh, well, you're going to want to use my music. I had to make some changes because there were problematic voice leading issues. I said, okay, so what did you do with it? And I looked at it and, it, and he changed the melody. In every age, oh God, you have been our refuge. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, thought, I said, well, you know, the same chords will work, so I'm just going to go ahead and back you up, and let's just do it. And we went through, and I played the song, and everybody, everyone loved it. He sang his Ave Maria. We got to the end of the funeral, and you know how the, the funeral directors come in, and they got the two envelopes, and I always think the singer's in charge. So they come up and hand the two envelopes to the, to the singer, and he says, well, this one's mine, and this one's yours. And he just shrunk down into himself and slinked away and he was red. And, and I, didn't have to, I didn't have to lift a finger to do that. <laughs> but he came back in later and he just put the music on the piano and said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought, have a nice day. 
so now having having heard that story of Jeanette, I guess maybe here now publicly I should apologize for all of the times that I've tried to rewrite all of your songs. <laughs> or or maybe say you're welcome. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know which is best. Can you imagine though not realizing that you are singing the song being accompanied by the person who wrote it and telling that person that you've changed it because you thought that there were problems. I I know I know a lot of people and I'm not going to mention any of their names here right but we all know these people and at different times we have all been that person, right? Who will unfortunately maybe savagely be critical about a piece or something somebody's written or somebody's done but we're we are always careful about where we say it and when we say it. <laughs> like it is, it is just, it's horrifying to, I, I don't know. That's one of those stories where as Jeanette tells it, like I f- have a, an actual like physical reaction to it. I like feel the embarrassment. Like I, I take on the embarrassment and I, I just, I don't know. It's, it's crushing. I know the cringe, the cringe is uh, uh, intense in, in that story. It's, it, it's hard. And I think that's a, that's part of the vocation here is knowing that when you release the song, you've released it. And that's why I think it's incumbent on composers to do like everything you can. If you're really insistent about how you want something to go, you have to notate it as such so that it's, that it's foolproof. And I, I wonder too, and, and I don't, we don't have to get into this a lot here. I mean, this is part of a, a bigger conversation that we can have over future episodes and other, other interviews, but I wonder too if if certainly in a story like that there's the disappointment of you know the way that human beings and I include myself in this are not gentle with the good work of other people. I also wonder, you know, we we started at the beginning, you know, by talking about pieces like this being written by 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 composers who are also pastoral musicians and how important that connection is. We've heard that from, you know, Fran O'Brien. We've heard that from other other guests, other composers who are in, in parish settings. You, I mean, you yourself, Zach, being a, a parish music director who composes and the importance of that connection. But oftentimes, you know, I can imagine this cantor coming into the organ loft, never assuming your typical parish music director would be a composer, which is which is too bad, which is unfair. I also wonder to some extent, you know, here's a, a parish music director and accompanist who also is a woman, you know, in a loft. And and there's there's not that I don't know, there there's something there about the fact that a person wouldn't assume that the musician in front of you could be a composer. There I don't know, there's something there culturally or systemically that um, you know, I, I bump on when I hear a story like that. Well, I think our assemblies are often unaware that there are people living and working writing this music as we live and breathe i know when i was a kid growing up playing these songs like these were just phantom specters these names uh, (laughs) faceless names at the bottom of the pages uh that were and i think this podcast has been helpful in illuminating uh the lives and the journeys of a lot of these people who are who are writing this music I mean, people people tend to be fairly safe in the way they criticize. I mean, people have a lot of opinions, right? But I mean, people seem to be fairly guarded in where they share those criticisms. Again, it just seems like there's a 
certain element of an assumption of who a composer is and who a composer isn't when you're in a situation and feel safe enough to be so dismissive. Like even her comment about, you know, him rolling his eyes because they were singing on Eagle's Wings. Well, he knows Michael Jonkins isn't as in the loft. And I bet if Michael Jonkins was, he wouldn't have rolled his eyes, you know. But I mean, again, there's something interesting about the fact that it was a situation where I feel like I can just tear apart this song because I assume the situation I'm in is not one that could include the composer. Well, it's also interesting because I think people tend to think of music as a preordained jigsaw puzzle where there is a right and a wrong way to put the pieces together. And to some extent, that's true when we think about things. But for for this guy in particular to think that there was a certain way it actually had to go and, you know, then to also have the arrogance that it would take to tell someone else this is how it should go. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and I suppose in church music, too, like this is this is maybe um, and again, not as a as someone who doesn't compose. I don't know how you square this circle, Zach, but like clearly we know what the pieces sound like that have worked. So then when you're contributing something new to the repertoire, to what extent do you incorporate, quote unquote, what has worked? And to what extent do you offer something new? I mean, even, you know, the comments that Jeanette mentions of, well, this note here should be this because it sounds better or it sounds more familiar. Um, but this is this is her piece. You know, so I don't know what it is about church music in particular that that causes people to do that. Right. And so much of our instincts regarding melody come from uh, the music that we've listened to all our lives, from the culture that uh, we we come from. Um, it can be quite limiting, I think. And I think something that we can all be better at is uh, the widening of our lens as to what could work. There is definitely something to be said for the practice of wanting to write where the assembly naturally goes, right? Um, I think if we hold on so tightly to that all the songs are going to sound the same i think we can allow some room to say i know you thought that xyz was going to be the next note but it could be this other one if you just give it a listen and just let it live there for a moment well, and, and that's just it. I mean, that's the uh, that's sort of the, the poetic justice of this story is that, you know, not only did he realize, oh, my God, I'm talking to the composer, but here we are talking about this piece 22 years after its copyright, where it's in hymnals all over the country and a ubiquitous piece as it was originally written. Clearly, it works. I know for me, I didn't think that my music was out in the wild beyond the people who knew me until I heard like YouTube videos or other um, recordings of people doing my music who I didn't know and doing it in ways that I would never have intended (laughs) at tempos that I don't know where they came from uh, notes and phrasing that I don't I you know were not a part of my my original thoughts. How does that, I mean, so, so knowing that's going to happen, like, tell me about like, what are there, there have to be times, I, again, I'm, I'm guessing 
there have to be times when you say, oh, you know what, this is what's going to happen when this is out there, and this is what people are going to do to it, so I'm just going to write it that way. Yeah. And there have to be other times when you say, no, this is what I want no matter what. Like, how do you, uh, is that, is that true? Or how do you, how do you discern, you know, which of those two ways you go when you're writing? I can only speak from my own experience and I'd be interested to hear what other composers say about this. I know with my choral work, like for the, like stuff that gets published in the choral series, I'm a lot more um, fastidious about dynamics and phrasing marks um, just because I know choirs and directors are going to be looking at it through that lens a lot more carefully. Uh, we don't generally publish dynamics and things like that in the hymnal. So when I write for the assembly, I don't think about it um, that much. Uh, one example about things that I know that I'm not really too worried about is I, I have a, a setting of a hymn text by Jackie Jones Um and there's there's two phrases in it where the note could be an F or a G. And me and my now fiancé uh, argue about it uh, as to which note it should be. And at the end of the day, both work in the chord. And um, I, I don't care because I know even everyone's going to sing it a different way. And it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But... Um, you know, and then there are other things that I I notate in a really precise way because I wanted to try to be that way always anytime that someone sings it. You know, it is interesting and I don't I don't know that this is a a problem or like something that should be done differently, but uh, I guess I I didn't this didn't land with me until you know, we've been just talking about this now that when you think about elements of a piece in its octavo format or elements of a piece in a manuscript when you as a composer submit it. All of the dynamics, the as Jeanette talks about, the extended introduction that she wrote and the outro, which frames things differently. You know, even the dedication line that we talked about that gives it a little bit of depth of character and uh, uh, humanizing or personalization. All of those are things that do not get represented in the hymnal. Right, and I don't, I don't know if that means we should put those in the hymnal. I mean, it's going to increase page count, and it's going to increase all kinds of other things. But I mean, it's interesting to me that some of those things that really are like the seasoning of the piece are not included in the format that gets the broadest, you know, attention. That's in the hands of the most people. Right, right. I think perhaps the single best example of this is A Taste and See by James Moore. That people do not know that much of his compositional output is steeped in the gospel style. And and the way that people uh, uh, will do Taste and See, completely unaware of that style, of that um, approach to composition... Uh, it, it's it's really interesting. We're seeing a lot of different versions of Taste and See that I think James Moore uh, would never have intended. Is that bad? Is that good? Uh, I don't I don't know, but I think it would be helpful if our decisions were rooted in more information rather than less. I have uh, one son, one child. He's thirty four years old. But when this song was born, I can only make the, um, make the connection between what it feels like to know a child when a child is, you know, their face is formed and then you watch that face 
stays the same even through toddlerhood, through 10, through 17, through 25. And that's this song. This song has a face. It has a face and a, and a place for me. And it's in, in my arms. And um, it's, like a, it's like a child that is doing just fine out out there in the world on, on his or her own. Um, and when I get to see it, when I see, see her, I, I'll call her, when I see her in passing, when I go somewhere or sometimes um, that, that song, I'll hear that song like on a news clip about a funeral that's happening. I'll hear, hey, they're doing it every age. And it's like, it reminds me of when I was um, a jazz band musician in the high school jazz band we went to japan and we were in the ginza in tokyo and someone told me you know if the longer you stand here if you stand here for five minutes you'll see someone you know and the woman that i was with stopped dead in her tracks and she gazed off into the distance and she saw her grown son walking along with a bunch of kids and she didn't know he was there and he didn't know she was there and she was just looking that's my son over there way over up in japan and to me, that's what it's like. It's like, wow, there she is, and she's just doing fine. She's looking good. She's sounding good. She's uh, taking good care of herself. My work here is done. So that's kind of what it's like. It's like a, a, a child. Um, the same can be, I'd say the same about here at this table. It's like, yeah, that's, it's working. It's out there doing, do a good job out there, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's the way it feels so um but i don't know that the song itself has changed i always welcome and appreciate when people write to me or they send me videos of themselves singing the song and oh i want you to hear my seven-year-old boy singing this song and so i i love that it's out there i love that it's just seeped into the yeah if i was telling my husband if i stopped writing tomorrow you know my life will be complete because in every age is out there. And uh, what's his name? Is it Pete Seeker? Who's the one that wrote Little Boxes on the Hillside? Hillside. He said, well, does it bother you that nobody knows that you wrote that song? He says, I don't know. I love that that song is out there. It's part of people's DNA. It doesn't matter who wrote it. And to me, that's, that's kind of that's, that's where it is with me. But it doesn't change. It's this, this is my baby. And now, here is a recording of In Every Age, in its entirety. Sea and stars of the night 
Welcome back, everyone. It is now time for the Open Your Hymnal playlist. This, of course, as our longtime listeners know, is the time in the show when we get to feature other music based upon the conversation from today's episode. In today's episode and in several of our previous conversations, we've talked about composers who are active in parish and church ministry. So today we want to feature a piece by another composer in active ministry. So this is from composer Kathleen Basie. This is her piece called God in the Barren Spaces.
so we had a conversation in this episode about what happens in the performance of some songs when we don't have all the information in front of us. And one of the examples we used for that was James Moore's uh, Taste and See. So we thought it'd be great to include that in this playlist. So our last selection for today's playlist, we're going to return to another piece from Jeanette. This is this is one of my favorite compositions of hers, or at least a composition of hers that I've come to to learn in the last last few years. An appropriate song for these days. So not only is it our final song in our playlist, but also sort of the the prayer that we want to leave you with today, and that is Jeanette Sullivan Whitaker's song "Day of Peace." I dream of a morning in springtime, bright with sunshine, and here in the heart of this very land, God's delight, hand in hand, I know.
for listening to Open Your Hymnal and special thanks to Jeanette Sullivan Whitaker for joining us. For more information about the songs you heard, 
Links to purchase this music and additional resources can be found at our website, openyourhymnal.com. Production assistance and support for this episode was provided by OCP. Be sure to follow Open Your Hymnal on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you haven't yet, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. For Open Your Hymnal, I'm Zach Stahowski. And I'm Matt Reichert. Thanks for listening.